All right, and welcome back or welcome to another On Coaching podcast with Magnus and Marcus. I am Steve Magnus, the author of the new book, The Passion Paradox and Coach, and I'm with you. In person. In person. In H-Town, Speed City. (laughs) It's hashtag for the city, baby. I think you hit every U of H hashtag there. Oh, hashtag Uh, go kooks. There there you go. Um, (laughs) Sitting in Houston recording after a... Very long but productive day at Gain, Vern Gambetta's wonderful conference. Um, that you know, if you haven't checked it out, put it on your radar for you know next what Gain year. Is Gain, I decided, is like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate <laughs> Factory, but for coaches. It, it is. It really is. It's just like a little bit of everything. And every time you turn around the corner, you go, "Ooh, what's that? Ooh, what's that?" And I was like, "I'm overwhelmed, but highly satisfied." And that's just day one. And we got. Four more days to go, so it's going to be rad. If you haven't checked it out, you must put it on the bucket list. It's worth every penny. Vern's a genius. He's not going to be around forever. He wants to coach for 50 more years. I hope he does, but you know what? The all-star cast he brings in, phenomenal. Like, who do we hear today speak? Bill Knowles, John Keeley, um, yeah, Len from Talk on Decision Making from the Playmakers Handbook that we had on the podcast about a year ago. I mean, and then tomorrow we got Eddie Jones on the on the docket, and we got Jimmy Jim Radcliffe. I mean, we, the names just keep dropping. That's the reach of Vern Gambetta. So check out Game 2020, 20 or excuse me, 2020, because it's awesome. All right, and one more thing uh, to cover before we dive into our topic of this week is if you haven't checked out the High Performance West Scholar program, you should do so. Why? Because John and I have been putting together some special things that are going to drop over the next couple months. We've got some exciting changes coming. Oh my God, it's going to get really good really quick. So get on board the train now so you can be a part of all the excitement and goodness that's coming here in probably like the next four to six weeks. That's right. Part of the thing is in between our... uh, 6.30 a.m. to 8 p.m. Vern Gambetta Gain Madness. We've also been sneaking in time to work on the Scholar Program. So look for those, but get involved. we got a lot of cool stuff going out this week. I've got, gosh, uh, basically a 15-chapter book on my guide to coaching that is going on right now every week getting released. And we also have the Supreme Scholar Seminar. If you haven't checked that out, that was a tour de force a timeless evergreen thing Steve and I put together of the history, combining the history of distance running training along with our current practices from what we learned from mentors um, and also athletes that we coach. You actually get to see the training plans and the realities that athletes such as Nicole Blood, Tara Welling, Daniel Herrera, uh, uh, Natasha Rogers, etc., cetera, uh, Sarah Hall that we've coached that they actually went through to propel them to some degree of success and also some degree of not success because that's the reality of coaching, right? Is you can't always come out on top. That's sport, that's life, that's truth. <laughs> no no BS here. We fail and fail quite a lot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, talking about failure, this week's podcast uh, title come up with you or uh, by you, John. Um Playing Hurt. Yes. So we're going to dive into the wonderful world of injuries and how to manage them because as a coach, you're often put in this situation where you have some sort of pain, some sort of thing popping up that isn't quite as easy to say, hey, this is a stress fracture, go sit out, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. a couple months and then, you know, report back in six to eight weeks and then we'll get on the track. Right. Um, a lot of times what we're doing is managing different things from aches and pains and muscles to joints to tendons and deciding and making this inner calculus of, okay, do we keep pushing things? Do we go into a rest mode? Mm-hmm. Do we go into rehab? Can we still race through this once it gets to championship style season? Right. These are the decisions that all of us face because no matter at, if you're at the high school, college, or professional level, like when it comes down to that championship season, like we've all been in it and been like, oh man, yep. like uh, his calf is kind of not the best, but 
it's the state championship, so how do we make this work? And this is the, the reality of sport, right? We sit here and we um, theorize about training progressions, periodizations, you know, manipulations or building of tolerance of different pathways. And in the beginning of the season or, you know, midway through the season, it's all smooth sailing. It all looks like it's just going to be step by step, linear progression. And then some guy bumps his knee on a table and has some patellar stress that you just can't get rid of. Or someone's um, sore calf starts to become more than a sore calf, a tight Achilles and potentially a hot spot on the shin. What do you do? Because the reality is most of us aren't coaching replaceable robots. I wish we were, or that we could just go into the inventory closet, get a new one, put them on, and you know our first woman or first man is fresh as new. But the truth is that championship is not moving the date, no matter how good you're feeling or not feeling or how prepared or ill-prepared someone is. So you have to say, well, how do we manage or massage um, essentially what we had in store from a preparation standpoint to keep the athlete and here we're going to talk about runners more than athletes but keep the runner running so that they can be a contributor that they can realize if it's their senior year the last season in college or high school and go out with a bang rather than go out with a, a fizzle and I think you know we have to um, just be honest about it and saying we have to like Bill knows, Bill knows is one of the um, people that we heard speak today, uh, and he was talking about uh, aggressive rehabilitation treatments. He is, you know, a uh, uh, getting athletes back as fast as possible, and coaches have to be in that mindset of we want to get people back or keep them in play as best as possible within the tolerance of safety. But at the same time, too, recognize that it's not going to be smooth sailing, and there's going to have to be a lot of compromise on this path to keep them showing up to race after race or to get them to that final um, exclamation point race at the end of the season with enough in the tank from a preparation standpoint or potentially a cross training or alternative preparation strategy as like Dan Path would say, your plan B, C, D, your contingency plans in some sort of condition to compete. Exactly. You know, and Actually, I've I faced this a number of times, but recently on the collegiate system, um, we had a young lady who it was her fifth year, mm -hmm. right? And she was running really well all season. Uh, got down, I think it was after pin relays. Um, ended up just having some weird kind of quad hip flexor uh, pain. We sat her out of meet. We're going into the conference championship, and she couldn't run. Right. Like yeah. it started, it got it got so bad that like she couldn't walk around without there being pain. Mm -hmm. And you're sitting here saying, "Okay, you've got a week and a half left of your your college career." Yeah. So like the, the the decision tree there is like, okay, um, do we push it? Do we say up? Oh, you're just done. Forget about it. And, you know, uh, I'm lucky that we have a good athletic training staff who has uh, flexibility, I'll say that, and acknowledges the reality of running at this level. Yeah. So we sat down and we said, okay, here's the plan. We're going to get an MRI, see if there's anything torn. Mm -hmm. If there's nothing torn and it's just some sort of tendonitis or some sort of thing where one or two races won't make it catastrophically worse so that this person is impaired for moving for whatever, then we're going to go with it. Right. And that's what it ended up being. There was no tear. It was just really bad tendonitis. Um, and like... We said, okay, you're going to cross train and not do anything and you're going to show up on race day and just race it and mm -hmm. like that'll be your run. Right. And she did really well. She has a 1500 PR of 431. She ran 432 in the prelim, made the final and it was great. Yeah. And, you know, that was one of those cases where for me it was it really pushing as a coach because a we she was a good athlete who i thought could make a final and potentially score but more so it's a fifth year athlete who's not going on to run professionally right. who's done everything right who's a great kid who you're sitting there like ah yeah. 
Yeah. Like they don't want to go out on like, well, I didn't give it a shot. Mm -hmm. So you weigh this calculus of, okay, what's the risk, right? And can we manage that in an appropriate manner so that we, we can't eliminate the risk, but that we say, okay, here's the likelihood of this and this. Like, are you willing to take that that chance? And I think there's always a risk, right? When you fill out, like in Oregon at the high school level, there's a blue card. And it basically says, sport can be damaging to your health, like essentially, right? Because it can be. But the, the truth is there's always a risk no matter what we do. You get in the car to go to the grocery store real quick for some milk, there's a risk that you could you know, get a flat tire, the engine could explode, uh, you get hit by another car, etc. You know, and we have to acknowledge that. And yes, while we theoretically want to live in a risk-free world, that's not the fog of chaos that is sport and life. And so understanding that you have to then present the risk and the known probabilities or the, um, you know, uh, projected probabilities that if you do continue X activity on this uh, compromised constitution, here are potentially the various outcomes that could happen, best case scenario, worst case scenario, in between. And then it's on the athlete, I think, to drive the decision making with the um, support staff and the cohort of support staff, whether that's your you know, sports medicine staff, your performance staff, your coaching staff, and you know, maybe their other close counsel, depending on what age they are, to then make the best informed decision that's saying we know the risks, we understand the risks, but here's the reality that we live in. And like Steve said, like you don't get to get to run the championship when you feel perfect. Like things happen, you know, in training, things happen in races. People just, you know, don't necessarily have a picture perfect profile of these things. Yet we would love to have perfect mechanics, no dysfunction, perfect preparation. But we have to get away from this uh, fragility um, this false concept of perfect. And it's not about compliance or lack thereof compliance. It's actually on the coach to write a training plan and then be able to initiate the um, variability or initiate the revisions in the training plan as different things pop up along the way. You know, a good friend who's an athletic trainer at one of the better uh, NCAA uh, college track programs once told me that um, the difference between what he's seen working at a high-end program and maybe one that didn't have quite that tradition um, in that level of athlete yet where they were used to it is that when he was working with the high-end program, they look for solutions, mm -hmm. right? And when he was working with the, the lower-end non-established program, they'd look for precautions, Right. right. Yeah. They take the preventative, like the precautions, the cautious, like route, almost always. Mm -hmm. And with the other program, it's like, okay, here is reality we're dealing with. Like this athlete has A, B, C, and D. Let's run through all the scenarios and say, okay, like, can we train? Can we race on this? If not, what is the likelihood of like getting back? What's the best case scenario? And run through all those different things instead of sit there and be like, okay, this athlete like pulled their hamstring, right. like yeah. shut them down for the year, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. How do we how, instead, again, and I've seen this in our own program at U of H, it's like, okay, this happened. Like, is it possible to get them back? And how do we do this in the best possible right. manner? Yeah. And it's more solutions based versus just saying, oh, hands tied, like, right. Let's wait till we rehab. And the truth of the matter is you're always tiptoeing with a high-level athlete or with an athlete at the apex of their fitness. You're always tiptoeing mm -hmm. the line of um, uh, fit, uh, the highest fitness possible and catastrophic injury. You're always right there. And a good example of this happened recently, like, you know, working with Eleanor Fulton, she had a breakout indoor season, went and ran, ran World Cross, and I told her this, like, you know, like, hey be cautious, be aware, we got to manage things when they come up. But in the course of getting ready for world cross relays and then running world cross, you know, she sustained a, tell, uh, a tear in her, um, um, uh, in her, uh, what was it, in her 
tibi, uh, posterior tib tendon. So she tore her posterior tib tendon slightly in acute tear by running world cross, which, you know, again, crazy footing, you know, crazy conditions, like, you know, the most, uh, to me, it is one of, if not the most intense champ world global championships in the books, right? And you don't want to rob someone of that opportunity and say, hey, don't run. Yeah. Because <laughs> you might not get back to that situation, but it was like, you know, being text overseas, you know, late night for me, early morning for her saying, look, ultimately, you know, working with the USATF sports science staff that was there and sports performance and medicine staff and her, it was like, you just got to figure out what you want to do and you'd be okay with. And the one thing is you could be on the shelf and not be running on land for like six to eight weeks potentially. And she said, that's fine. This is really important to me. And, but we managed that. And we managed her comeback and we managed her um, cross training and her preparation with her team here in the States when she got back. And that's the reality of it. And I've coached in high school and college girls and women who have had torn labrums. And we've managed the torn labrum throughout the course of careers and seasons and it didn't impact their ability to compete at their highest level. And so, again, like... If you're a coach, you have to become sensitive to the truth of the matter that you have to have some knowledge of anatomy, of um, uh, sports medicine. You know, you're not the expert. Maybe you're not the certified expert. Like I always tell my athletes, like the physical therapist that we send um, them to when they're expressing pain or coming back from an injury or something like he's coach until he says I'm coach again. Yeah. Right. But in the course of it, those, you know, as Shalane Flanagan says, those niggles, those little aches and pains that you might get, like a sore this, a stiff that, you know, something that's just a hot spot that has to be managed. Like that's where day-to-day decision-making has to be um, front and center between athlete, coach. And if you're lucky enough to be in a situation where you have communication with a uh, medical professional of some sort, creating that triad. But nine times out of ten, if you're at the high school level and even sometimes if you're at the post-collegiate level, it's just athlete and coach making those decisions. <laughs> and, and that's the tricky thing because, like, I think, you know, well, for example, um, being in the position I'm in, I've seen sprinters run 10 point with tears in their hamstring. Yeah, micro tears, yeah, yeah, for sure. Which is... You know, mm-hmm. if that showed up in any normal doctor's office, they'd be like, yep, shut, you're down. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but it, it happens. And I think we're not saying like, oh, I'll run through everything. But the idea is it's you've got to understand this calculus that you've got to do to understand, okay, what are the risks? What are the benefits? What can we manage to do? Is there anything outside of the norm that makes this uh, possible that we can, you know, work through or not because Mm -hmm. it's a difficult thing and then i think on the flip side of that is as a coach you have to understand okay not only are okay can we tear this get a stress fracture from this whatever if we continue on but um as we listened to today and bill knowles talk is that injuries aren't just biological Mm -hmm. it's what is going to happen from a neural brain standpoint if we continue to run through this thing for too long or if we run through this thing are we going to create like pathways and habits mechanically neurally that might be difficult to change if we get stuck in this pattern right yeah john keely yeah talked about that as well and he said you know if we uh if we stay in a pattern, any type of pattern becomes a groove, whether it's a virtuous or vicious pattern, right? So it's also understanding, managing the time horizons. Now, if you have the time, it's best to, you know, in the season, like early season, it's best to, you know, get the athlete away and let the, you know, the tissue, whatever it is, bone, ligament, muscle, or a mixture of all three, uh, recuperate and fully uh, resuscitate. Yes. But also you have to be able to keep that person um, engaged and performing. So I'll give another anecdote here um, with Eleanor Fulton, uh, the first indoor season I coached her. You know, she uh, uh, sustained like uh, Achilles strain. And this is a month out before the USA Indoor Championship. So 
she didn't do any land running um, for about a month. I mean, I don't think she ran on land until about seven to six days before the U.S. Championships endurance in the 1K. And in that interim, uh, you know, we weren't just solely worried about her metabolic um, training. So, you know, she did, yes, some cross-training, metabolic cross-training on, say, like the elliptical or the pool. But a lot of it was also med ball work and uh, manipulations with uh, weightlifting to create the a very similar like lactate or acidosis profile that she would get if she was doing tough track workouts right and so it was on me to like reach out to mentors do a lot of research and figure out what are other ways besides running around in circles on a track that we can get a very similar physiological neurological um, response or building intolerance that's going to meet the demands of the crucible that she's going to go to running a thousand meters and this was at Albuquerque at 5,500 feet and we the the scoreboard said we'd manage it pretty well because she showed up she ran a PR on the prelims and then got top seven in the finals you know on back-to-back days without feeling like oh I'm exhausted I couldn't compete you know just the people who were ahead of her in the finals that year were just better than her right and so now were we at a disadvantage because she wasn't able to do a track workout for the month prior to the indoor championships i don't think so because we were able to figure out an intelligent way to get the stimulus and to get the improvement she needed to compete at that level and that's what you as a coach and any of us as a coach have to do we have to the old cliche think outside these junior concepts and these junior concepts are oh, the muscle is torn, and so this mechanical thing called a muscle belly must be resuscitated. Well, there's a whole lot of other processes and um, uh, maps in the body besides the, the muscle map, right? Yeah. And, we, and that's, that's where it's on us to expand beyond these junior concepts. It, yeah, and I think that, you know, that's one of the biggest things that's changed in my thinking in terms of injuries and how the body works from maybe a decade ago to now, right? Where you sit there and you think, okay, you know, you used to think, oh, this muscle is strained. Like, okay, it's like tearing a rope. Like, we just have to wait till it's like stuck back together. Mm-hmm. Um, but the body, thankfully, is much more complex than uh, we ever give it credit for. So the body just doesn't repair and that's it right we have all these it repairs in different ways it has we compensate for whatever has happened uh to give us function while things are repairing right our body is smart enough to be like oh you know this part of this part of the hamstring is a little off so like we'll use this this and this to get the job done Mm -hmm. until things are better our neurological system compensates our fascia compensates like everything compensates to agree to agree and i think being aware of that is incredibly important um, because it shapes not only what you can do while you're managing things, but also how you come back of, off of it. You know, I noticed this actually early on in my, my career when I, uh, I went through a period where I probably had, gosh, two or three quad strains. And it just got to be kind of this repetitive thing. And I remember one day I was coming back from, I think, my third one and, like, getting back into it. And, like, things were feeling good, but I still didn't feel like I could go full bore and sprint. I was like, I'm going to sprint up hills because I think everything's healed, but I think my body just doesn't know it was healed. That was my logic at the time. (laughs) And I was like, I'm just going to sprint up hills and, like, fix it. And maybe don't try this but (laughs) for me at that point it worked right right? because the muscle was quote-unquote healed Mm -hmm. but neurally i was still protecting things Mm -hmm. and it wasn't fully what i imagine as firing properly because like my brain still saw it as like damage protect like don't use it and the the way i like to describe it is i almost when I was running like this, it almost felt like my right leg with the quad injury was running on a little bit flat tire where the left leg's like do, going through, cycling through, bouncing off, and your right leg just feels a little bit, yeah. a little bit slow, a little bit like, come on, crank through this. Mm-hmm. And hill sprints, for me, um, like set that back in motion where it's like, okay, we can do this. Right. 
We're all right. And, you know, I've worked with a couple athletes who have had Achilles injuries. Uh, similarly, where this time they struggle a lot of times on that push-off where they're really extending, and they'll cut it short without noticing it because they've been used to protecting it so right. for so long. Right. So you have to get used to doing things like lands and hops and bounds and all that stuff to almost like get that wiring going again where it's like we're all right yeah it's like re-engaging the the tensile stiffness right yeah. and re-engaging the ankle amortization stiffness and minimizing that ground contact time and that's what ends up happening right and so you know i think the the way i i i thought about it when i was a younger coach or uh like i was introduced to more reductionist and absolute type thinking is you're looking at the oceans as the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, etc. And you're but the reality is it's all one ocean. It's all one body of water. Like on planet Earth. It's one. And but we just give different zip codes of bodies of water and we call them separate oceans, even though they're all the, they all interact in one big fat ecosystem, right? It's the same way with the body, right? We might call something a bicep or a soleus or a planner, but all those things, whether they're in the like tendon category, the fascial category, the muscular category, the bone category, they all interact, right? And so we know that this harmonization or this orchestra so to speak that is the human body is you can do things to one side of the body and the other side of the body will actually respond one of my favorite things to tell athletes who are in a boot or who have a stress fracture is don't stop working the healthy leg because we know you can get 15 to 10 percent engagement in the in the injured leg that's not even doing the movement pattern just by working the healthy leg and you know one of the things you don't want is atrophy because that's what a um, corpse does a corpse atrophies very rapidly because it's zero movement zero uses zero engagement and you know uh, there was a quote thrown up by Plato that essentially says a healthy body is a moving body and this is true even of an injured body so it's on us to figure out like uh, ways and modalities to keep people engaged even if there are certain things like the big rocks that they can't do which is saying like for us run i mean how many times have you worked with a runner that could not just run and it's like well this championship's coming in six weeks and you can't run but we're still going to try to get you ready <laughs> yeah no 100 percent. you know and it, so there's two different things that i think are important on that and uh i'll try and tackle them real quickly is it's the it's the training for fitness to race and it's the training to move just move right right yeah and i think the training to fitness to race like runners have gotten pretty good at understanding okay like we can maintain some sort of sim, uh some sort of stim stimulus and semblance of fitness by doing and challenging us in these different ways and how we do that you know um i think off the top of my head real quickly is like i had a college girl who a couple years ago trained twice a week running and the rest was all cross training and ran sub 17 for right 5K. i remember you talking about her yeah and mm -hmm. like that's pretty dang good yeah. you know to be able to do that so that challenges our perception a little bit of like okay what what can we do if we say okay we only have this minimum time to run and like get our bang for the buck there but use these different modalities to understand okay this is how we get it and it's not just like going and getting on the bike and spinning for a while yes. right it's challenging your yourself in the similar ways that you would in running in terms of the workouts and dynamics and all that that good stuff and you know you can do this with very simple tools yes. um you know i have kept and rehabilitated or actually enhanced fitness of athletes I've worked with at the high school collegiate and post-collegiate level with saying uh, working on lactate tolerance through the power ropes, right? Or through boxing on a punching bag or even through med ball circuits and, or through single leg jump roping, speed rope. Like 
or through um, kind of weightlifting programs that are not designed for absolute strength and power, but more designed to create a metabolic effect. And so essentially what you do, and I'll give a, a concrete example here, is if you're doing, say, those power ropes, right, you can, um, you know, create different harmonies with the power ropes, right? So you have different tempos and different force expressions, which, you know, I do say, I, I tell the athletes, you know, there's small, medium, and big expressions. And so they're moving the opposite arms and create that what looks like a cosine wave if you're a math nerd right and so they're doing that with both arms and there's what i call big where then both arms are in harmony and through a full range of motion slamming the ground with um you know a squat in there and so what i do with these athletes is i say okay we're gonna go for 45 seconds roughly with 20 seconds break or 20 or 15 seconds break and we're going to go three times through for three minutes or four, or four times through for four minutes total with the breaks included. And that's a set. And so now what I'm doing is I'm basically having them do 300s, right, for 45 seconds. If male or female, like at the my level, it's like three. there's basically a 300-meter rep with very short rest, so like a float 100 essentially. And they're having to express different catalogs of power. And you have... Um, multiple sets of that, right? The the acidosis tolerance training that they're getting is exactly the same as if I was having to do, uh, like say a world class female miler do 40, 300 meters at forty five seconds, with say thirty seconds jog for hundred meters four times um, in a set, and then do three two to four sets of that, right? With six minutes rest in between. It's the physiology. It's the same, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and and you know that's the thing is um, is you can really get creative on on what you can do. You know, I remember back in high school. I mean, I I don't know if I've told this story before, but maybe I have. Um, but I ran a four twenty one mile as a freshman and didn't even get out of the out of the pool because I had a stress fracture until maybe 6 weeks before that mm-hmm. right and spent my entire winter break leading up into the season in the in the pool and uh our coach had us do all sorts of aqua jogging without a belt yep. sometimes we wore jeans in the pool mm-hmm. and did stuff like holding mm-hmm. med balls ahead, over our head while trying to aqua jog and like he put us through the ringer on that stuff and it it worked really well i mean your legs coming out of that well you're having no impact i I still remember getting out of the pool and just feeling legs just just full of lead and you're just like oh gosh this sucks um but you can get a great stimulus you know my for a long time my uh volunteer assistant who's a great coach nate pineda would take our athletes to um to the to the pool on my college team and do extra training in terms of aqua jogging again without a belt um and he had created some fantastic workouts Mm -hmm. to get people the stimulus that we weren't getting out on the track so that's funny because like i did the same thing in high school like i I, my junior year of high school i sustained a, a, a tibial stress fracture i went into the pool for five weeks and when i went into the pool and i had the stress fracture i ran 859 for 3000 meters and then i go into the pool and same deal i wear like tights or i wear um snow gloves just to create extra weight and extra resistance in the pool and then i do um various fartleks in the pool and i mean i'm pretty diligent about it like instead of going to practice i'm just cranking it in the pool and I'm working at the same intensities as if I was working and doing you know, uh, like intervals or tempo runs or reps outside on land. And also at the same time too, I was also walking because I could do walking yeah. and I, had, I wasn't in a boot, but I was walking around <laughs> the indoor track for three miles after doing the pool. So I was creating, you know, this resist or creating actually weight bearing resistance and helping the bone heal without putting it in a compromised constitution. And then the first race back, I was legitimately running for five days and I ran and the coach was like, Hey, you know what? It's a little dual meet. No one's around. You know, it was against a team that was a sprint power team in our district and not a distance power team. Like, 
hey, just go out and run a 3K. Just as a, he just wanted to see where I was at, like just so I can get it, get a pulse on where you're at, and just run it, you know, as best as you can, soloing it. And I ran 856 solo. That's like, awesome. I, I mean, yeah. but that's what, and that to me was like a callus of like, oh, you don't just have to run to be good at running. Yeah, it's funny. Um, the walking reminds me so much of like two things: uh, early Japanese runners, and then early like 1900s. Yeah, like walking was the thing you did as a distance athlete. And like, well, even Allison Felix early yeah. on in her career, she yeah. she did a lot of walking as programming movement. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that we take for granted. Actually, my good friend and uh, co-author Brad, like he stopped running for a while when he had his kid. And instead, he'd just go five days a week. There's this beautiful park near his home. Take his take his newborn kid and mm-hmm. go on long, yeah. you know, hour and a half walks through the woods. And he was like, you know, there were some good hills there. And he's like, my my cardiovascular fitness is pretty good right. just from going on on these walks. Well, even when I was in college, you know, going on a walking tangent here, my best year. Uh, in college where I had all my PRs around like 14.15 for 5K, like 9.10 for steeplechase, like low 350s for 1500. You know, I was competitive at the uh, heptagonals conference level. I was running about 70 to 85 miles a week, but I was also walking through Manhattan about two and a half hours, you know, every other day almost because of my class schedule. And like, it wasn't that era where it was like, Oh, put on Normatec, get horizontal, don't move. When you think about it, though, like think from an evolutionary standpoint, like there was no Normatec recovery after chasing as fast as you could for as long as you could dinner, right? And I mean, you, you kind of look around and you think, well, huh, how did we evolve? We didn't evolve waddling our way and then spending all day recovering from waddling our way after a two mile, a two hour run with all these goos and um, sports, uh, sports like like we we sweat for a reason to keep our you know body constitution um, or our body core temperature cool. But we also move for a reason because movement actually enhances us as long as we are doing intelligent movement for where we're at with our you know uh, either personal dysfunction or our injury and so it's kind of on the and this is what bill knowles was talking about would yes. be as progressive and as quick as you can to get back to some type of movement so that's exactly what i thought when you said walking and moving uh, around is um again we'll put some links in the show notes but bill knowles in this presentation at gain uh put up tons of videos of athletes very good athletes. Like three days post-op, yeah. four days post-op. Coming off ACL, MCL, all mm-hmm. these major surgeries, doing all sorts of movements from crawling to walking to rolling to uh, doing work on a trampoline right. to doing all sorts of stuff in the pool. You know, as John said, three, four, or five days post-op where most of the time people are constrained in a brace and told not to move until things happen. Well, And two, it's also important to understand it was preceded by getting strong and staying strong pre-op before going into surgery, right? So you have to make sure you're not just going into surgery on the couch, crying, eating bonbons, going, well, it was me, and then expecting to get back to it right away. Like I always tell athletes, hey, the best way to get fit is to stay fit. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. I know that one yes. by first hand. Don't don't get unfit. Yes. I tell my athletes all the time once they're uh, they're done with their last their senior seniors is don't stop running. Yeah. You're gonna regret it, man. <laughs> don't stop running. You're not gonna come back in a in six months after you've taken your your binge break. And it's funny, like I've 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 told them, uh, when I was coaching college. And the high school athletes, the same thing. And then years later, come back, God, you were right, coach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got fat. I blew no. up. I go, yes, because remember, you can eat pretty much whatever you want, but the consequences if you're inactive, and I don't care if you're, you know, the latest keto, paleo, <laughs> vegan, if you are inactive, the body will just naturally store that surplus energy because you're not using it. And like we are designed to be active well, machines. Well, I mean, think of it. It makes sense. Like when were you going to be inactive back 
back in the day. Right. The only time you're inactive is when you're sick, sleep. heart, yes, yes, or sleep. Yeah. Like if you're a normal functioning person, it's like, oh, this person is hurt, so they're in inactive. So we'll store this because we don't know the next time we're gonna get a meal. Right. Um, you know, it all makes kind of sense from an evolutionary standpoint. But going back to this movement is, I think, you know, when I look at injuries as a whole, is we tend to take this cautious, constrained um, mindset and view where we see it as either you're training or you're not. Like, and if you're injured, you're on the not side. Right. You you get sent off to the training room to do stem or ultrasound or whatever passive modality there is instead of thinking okay i've got this injury what opportunity do do i have to keep movement there and if that means walking great if that means going in the pool to walk and that's all you can do great right if that means doing some drills awesome if that means um you know you can't do work on your lower legs and that means doing some crawling motion and you know things like that great because movement your body adapts to uh and we know this if you if you think if you ever had a cast when you were young you know you yeah. broke your arm or leg or whatever doing something stupid you get that cast off and you look at that atrophied yep. you know muscle and you're just like oh gosh yep. like and then you try and get that movement back and it's just like, oh, and that, you know, a lot of us happened when we were young, when our, we're most adaptable and most resilient to come back mm -hmm. and it only gets worse as we age. So as we think about it now, it's like, okay, I got a stress fracture. Okay. Well, I'm just going to stay off of everything right. for yeah. as long as I can. And you sit there and you think, well, all, all you're doing is sending a message like, okay, detrain all of this stuff well it's also it comes from a very junior conceptualized or primitive model it's a reductionist model that the bones hurt so don't load the bone because i'm going to hurt the bone more when we know that neuroplasticity it does not stop yeah and the other the other part of it is that that we're appreciating now is that load is a stimulus yeah. right it's no different than me trying to get bigger muscles mm -hmm. If I don't load the bone up, then there is no stimulus for the bone to get stronger. It's right. the it's the same reason why, you know, when elderly people go into wheelchairs and things like that, their bone density plummets, plummets yeah. right? Because there's no stimulus. Mm -hmm. Or the best example, what happens to astronauts when they go off into space for a while? With no gravity. With no gravity. <laughs> yes. It's a huge problem. It's one of the problems they're trying to solve for, hey, if we're going to Mars, yep. right? You know, I'm, I was fortunate at University of Houston is they have a lot of partnerships with uh, NASA is seeing some of the exercises and modalities that they're creating to try and create some sort of weight-bearing um, exercise that astronauts can do um, in space with instead of anti-gravity treadmills they have treadmills that like strap and pull right. you down yeah. right so that you can get some sort of loading to keep that s stimulus going so and that applies not only to our bones but it's our muscles right. our tendons all that good stuff and if we just remove all stimulus well we think okay we're resting and recovering yeah we're good but a lot of times we are over recovered yes and, and you know be through for not doing enough work so you know steve and i have talked about this before like the recovery paradox where m most people are under recovered from a global sleep um, amount of time that they that they you know, participate in on a day-to-day -day basis and that's the biggest determinant to recovery is your ability and how much and how frequently you sleep or lack thereof but yet someone will happily invest in a normatech or happily you know, invest in uh, compression socks, right? Where there's still a whole lot of, well, it might work, it might not work, maybe it's more placebo when we know for sure sleep works, you know, but yet it's more important to go through your and get lost on your scroll than to get that extra hour or two hours of sleep, right? And, but then we say, oh, well, I just ran three miles easy, I need to recover, guys. And it's like, well, if you normalize, 
that stimulus you know it's not really a, a there's not really a necessity to recover and if you're you know moving with a low degree of dysfunction same situation here you have to figure out how to create a stimulus on the compromised tissue that's going to have a positive effect right so if you have a stress fracture then you're saying well what's a way to have a positive impact globally on the bone tissue well strength and conditioning weight training right or getting on a vibe plate and having some vibe plate uh, interventions, right. you know, several times a week for three minutes at a certain um, uh, frequency, right? And understanding, like, and if you don't have access to those things, figuring out how you can with the prof- medical professionals that you have available at your disposal in conversation with the athlete. And if you are coaching younger athletes with the athlete's parents saying, here's where they're at, here's reality. It sucks. No one wants to get hurt. No one planned to get hurt. No, in, in injuries is no one's fault. They always they happen if you're pushing the bounds and trying to compete at your highest level. Here is the menu of the different directions we could take. You know, and then what do you feel comfortable with as the key decision makers and the key stakeholders with taking? You know, and some people might be really conservative, and they're just conservative, and you can't press it. Some people might be very progressive. Or you might have to paint a picture of like, hey, look, we can probably through this injury actually get you in a better global place after you um, come back at full form to play than actually when you entered the injury. So if you exit the injury in a better constitution globally than when you entered, that's pretty stimulating for an athlete. But then you have to paint how you're going to enhance the area of opportunities or weaknesses that they had going in through whatever type of exercises or um, training program that you're going to create for this athlete. And that's always when I tell people, like, my real job as a coach and when I really get paid, you know, earn my pay is when someone's in the injury or injury cycle. It's not ignore them and figure it out unless that's what they want. And sometimes they do. Sometimes it's like pity party, boo-hoo, woe is me. I'll take care of myself. I'll, you know, I'm not coachable right now. So what some people say, I go, Okay, that's fine. Let me know when you're coachable, because you know you're free. You're you're free to throw a pity party, but if you have you know the fifth man and you only have five good runners on this team that could do well at state, and they have a you know a shaky quad or a shaky hamstring, it's on you to then make decisions in concert with all the key stakeholders in that athlete's life about how to best keep them playing. And what that treatment pathway and also um, training pathway looks like. And maybe there's also some performance therapy interventions where they go see a chiro or a physio or, you know, massage therapists. Because we're trying to get to this apex that's non-negotiable and non-refundable most times in a championship meet. And there's been a lot of case studies of athletes who have, you know, uh, been able to rehabilitate or manage with their team what for some might think is a catastrophic injury, but an injury that allowed them to compete and get make a team, win a medal, etc. And then on the flip side too, you also have the inverse where you have those athletes like say Kevin Durant recently, right, in the NBA Finals here who had one injury and definitely knew the risks and was told the risk by a very intelligent team, but you have to do that cost-benefit analysis. I'm in the NBA Finals. It's important. We're down. We know statistically my team's better when I'm on the floor, even if it's just a placebo effect. And the risk is what we saw where potentially he blows out something else. Yep. You know, because those are the real risks of sport because we are, as athletes, putting our bodies on the line. It's not just our intellectual property. It's our physical property. And it's there are inherently, anytime you step on the track, the court, the field, there are big risks. The fact that a Tom Brady has lasted so long is not just only due to his methodical preparation and intelligence, but also in the, line, in the linemen that protect him. But also a little bit of luck. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, there, there's a high degree. And I think, it, and we, we know this as coaches, right? Because we've seen athletes and coached athletes who we, we sit there and be like, oh man, this person does everything right. And they move really well. And like their mechanics are great. And they still end up 
with some sort of injury. Mm-hmm. And you're just sitting there like, gosh, I don't know. And that's where the luck part comes in, where sometimes it's like we can do all these things that minimize our risk, but you cannot eliminate that risk. And that's why it's important to, I don't know, acknowledge and understand that and do your best, but also realize that, hey, sometimes things are out of our control. Yeah, like I've never liked the word injury or the phrase injury prevention. I think it's horseshit. You know, honestly, <laughs> it's like maybe we could relabel re- it as like injury resiliency, right? So yeah. it, the interesting thing, and this is a little tangent that will be hopefully interesting, I think, is the whole idea of the training room. I think was set up as like a uh, it's like putting out a fire right right and the mindset was okay this is where we come to like fix or put up fires or whatever that that is and that's where that kind of injury prevention kind of came out of is like you have this prevention based uh, mindset that's evolved and I remember you know, as an athlete, I think one year I was tired of getting hurt, so I was just like, I'm never going in the training room. <laughs> and thanks to a weird coincidence, I stayed healthy that year. Right. And it wasn't because I said I was never going into the training room. But I think there is something to that mindset of like, okay, like I'm I'm gonna not like think, okay, what happens if I if I get hurt? Oh, this feels a little little off, you know. Um, my high school coach was, uh, coach Mike Deldano was gr- one of my high school coaches was great at saying, giving this speech on like one of the most important things you can understand as a runner is, is it soreness or is it like an actual injury? Right. Right. Is it just kind of pain you got to deal with or is this something that is severe? And his point was as high schoolers, our sensitivities and ability to read that feedback are off. Right. So we interpret the signals incorrectly sometimes. Mm-hmm. And if we continually interpret the signals wrong, we're going to learn that like, oh, this little this little pain down here, this is something serious. And when we continually tell our body and our brain this is serious, our, our, our brain takes notice. Right. You know, it says like, this little pain down here, this is serious. We're, we, you got to go. And if you're working with like younger athletes, you have to anchor what that interpretation looks like. Like when I was working at the high school level, when I talk about pain with athletes, I'd say, you know, is it, ouch, I put my hand on the hot stove pain. Because that's a, ooh, ah, yee, that's bad pain. That's a stop immediately everything you're doing. Right. Or is it just like, Oh, I'm so tired. I didn't sleep enough. Oh, just oh, oh man, I shouldn't have eaten that like five burritos, like kind of achiness. But you can function, but it's not pleasurable to function type pain, right? So you have to translate these types of pains that they're going to be exposed to in sport, you know, whether it's DOMS, whether it is a tear or a pull, whether it's a stress fracture, and understand how can you interpret them in the language that they know through their life experience so that you are on the same wavelength, the same vocabulary. Because someone might come up to you and be like, ah, it really hurts, coach, it really hurts, coach. And you go, well, where? Well, it's, you know, it's bilateral, it's in, you know, both hamstrings. And you go, well, yesterday we did an activity that really recruited your hamstrings, so that makes sense. And, and you know, I, I think one of the best ways to see the power of this is if you take foam rollers, um, which do could do a lot of things, but one thing that we know for sure they do is they change your modulation with pain. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's probably one of the reasons they've become so u- like so utilized is not not because they break up adhesions or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. but they change the sensory feedback, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times in a positive way, but sometimes negative. Um, so like that's one way I like to conceptualize it of like, oh, okay. Like what we're reading from the signals our body sends us um, is incredibly important to understand. Yeah. And the truth of the matter is, right, like we you know, said early on in this episode, like you are always walking on thin ice, you know, and 
you're always going to play hurt or run hurt or compete hurt. And what is hurt? You know, that's a big um, spectrum, right? Like hurt can be micro tears just from having done weightlifting or uh, sprinting the day before, right? And then you feel that sense of DOMS, like, but yet you still get out there and you do oxidative recovery with the easy shakeout run, right? Or hurt might be, yeah, you know, I have this thing and, uh, you know, this ham or this, this calf um, tightness and, you know, it warms up after I get the endorphins going and I can manage it and get through it. But then just like, you have to manage uh, and keep a weathered eye on things and know potentially where um, certain things are going to go because you don't want a calf, you know, a tight calf to become a, an Achilles pole or become a stress factor, what they right. very easily could, right? And so a lot of times the runner or the athlete doesn't want to sacrifice a day or two of training by taking it away from training and like doing restorative activities because they feel like they're going to miss out. But that's where you as a coach also have to say, well, we have to exercise extreme caution early on because otherwise we're going to risk uh, catastrophic, you know, injury later on. And I think Sung Tzu said it in the Art of War, you know, things of little concern should be treated with great importance. Thing, or no, things of uh, a little importance should be treated with great concern. Things of uh, great importance should be treated with little concern, meaning that you can nip things in the bud early on if you catch it and you need to be very conscientious of that and uh, proactive with that versus once it's a stress fracture once it's a, a pulled hamstring you know or a grade four hamstring tear there's not a whole lot you can do when you get to what i call um you know those kiss of death injuries and yeah. there's some injuries that are just like kiss of death man like it's over it's total shutdown like because yeah. If we try to manage it, if we try to uh, push our way through it, it, all we're going to do is create con compensatory dysfunctional patterns and neural patterns. That's going to then lead. Then we're going to have a different injury that we have to then rehabilitate from. Once this injury is rehabilitated, and then we create the injury cycle. And the injury cycle, that's a vicious place to be in because what it is is one compensatory injury following another because you just did, you got a kiss of death injury and you didn't take that time off and so the truth is like yeah playing hurt is a reality for most athletes but you have to understand the spectrum and then also the potential consequences and how long you're opting to play hurt yeah and and i think you know if i was to summarize this up it's um a couple things it's it, it's yourself as a coach and the athlete you're working with and your situation and, and your situation um understanding the risks that you're taking um both in a short term and long term the potential benefits uh, obviously and the ability of the athlete to understand and conceptualize what is going on mm -hmm. Because if you've been in this business long enough and you've talked to athletes, for instance, asking them the question of describing your injury or describing the pain you're feeling, some will give you extremely detailed, yep. right? And they conceptualize it and they understand and they know what that feedback is and they can discern that feedback between maybe something that could be a, uh, leading towards you know off the cliff and something that eh, we can manage they have the ability to discern these signals others if you ask them will give nondescript kind of generic oh it hurts or oh it feels sharp or big words that <laughs> describe things that don't give this discernment right, right. and that's where you as a coach have to take, I think, a little more cautious and understand, okay, this athlete maybe doesn't have the experience of reading his body yet mm -hmm. to understand the nuance of what he's feeling or he or she is feeling. Um, so I'm going to have to like figure out ways to prod and poke to see, okay, where is the reality You have here? to be more Socratic with your approach, right? Because right. you can't feed them, oh, does it feel like this? And then they'll be like, yeah, it does. Yeah. And because they'll, they'll just, you know, kind of uh, mirror or, or puppet what you say. And when an athlete's having, you know, an injury or something's off, 
what you want is you basically just want their unbiased interpretation of the injury or of the pain or the discomfort, right? Because if, if, if you don't take the Socratic approach and just ask question after question after question to really dig and learn, what's happening then is they're going to create and puppet whatever you just said to reinterpret because like, that's what they think coach wants. Or for them, depending on their age, if they're high school or college, that's just easier to say, yeah, it's like that. It's in that zip code. It's in that ballpark. But with injuries, you don't want a zip code. You want a specific address and a door number because that helps you then to make better decisions about how to manage that injury moving forward. So uh, a quick side tangent before we wrap this one up. But um, for some reason, I got deep into the uh, science of what they call enterocept- enteroception, which is basically your your body, your mind, brain reading the feedback signals that come. Mm. Um, and there's been, and that could be from pain, it could be from emotions, it could be from feelings, whatever you want to call it. But there's inter- there's a lot of interesting research that shows the poorer your enteroceptive abilities, so your the the worse you are at um, deciphering and describing those sensations that are coming coming back, um, the higher your likelihood of depression. Wow. <laughs> because they think that you can't understand these emotions and separate them out and understand maybe the nuance between uh, feeling discomfort, discomfort or down or whatever you have and, di- and dividing them up so that you can interpret them accurately and your body knows how to respond to them. So, you know, as I read that, I'm like, okay, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I think the same thing applies to when we're talking about pain, fatigue, all these things in terms of injuries as well, mm-hmm. is if you don't uh, develop the ability to discern like the signals coming back, it becomes incredibly hard, as you just said, to understand how to treat or, pro- or approach this and whether this is that big alarm bell going off right. or, the, or if this is just like, oh, okay, like, yeah, you know, my gas is going down. I might have to change it at some point, but, you know, we're okay yeah. right now. Yeah. And I mean, and it's important as we wrap up, just remember, like what we're talking about is typically self-inflicted overuse injuries. We're not yes. talking about impact injuries. Correct. We're not talking about concussions. You know, those are, <laughs> those are things that are like, are just, all right, we are done here, right? I mean, if you have an ACL, MCL like type situation, like because of impact or what have you, like it's very clear what the pathways or concussions, very clear what the treatment pathway and timelines are on that. Here, we're talking about that more, that gray area. Yes of these soft tissue or even avascular tissue overuse injuries that come in Stephen I's world of distance running or track and field where there is no head-to-head combat or direct impact. So hopefully, yes, hopefully. <laughs> I mean, but you know, th- things do happen as you're going around the track at however many miles an hour, like in the 800 or the 1500, right? So, you know, I, I think, it, it, again, as we walk away from here, it's important to understand that. And then, two, if you're going to do any type of uh, aggressive or progressive uh, training, uh, um, uh, tra- uh, training protocols post-op, that is, you know, obviously you must have a cohort of medical professionals on board giving you saying, yep, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this. Otherwise, again, there's a whole bunch of liabilities at play. Because at the end of the day, sport is about teaching us resiliency, teaching us overcoming tough situations, digging deep, you know, doing things we didn't think were capable. And playing hurt is one of them. Hurt being soft tissue, overuse in nature, and understanding what that fine line is. And you're not going to be rolling 7 and 11s every time out. But what, you know, and there'll be a snake eyes here and there like we saw with Kevin Durant. And the important thing is to understand those types of injuries, you know, are re- even are no one's fault. It's the response to them and understanding and laying out all the possible consequence uh, pathways, you know, or not. That's where the fault comes into play. And because we are out here, we're agents making decisions in chaos as a real world. And, you know, yes, we want to be safe and, you know, longevity is key. But at the same time, too championship races fifth years final races those things don't come back around those are 
that's it. When that door's closed, it's over for some athletes. And that's what you have to be sensitive to is all these cofactors and multifactorial variables that come into play when giving your counsel. And at the end of the day, the agent who is in charge is the athlete and or if they're, you know, a young athlete, an underage athlete, uh, they're, uh, they're, they're, uh, guardian or parents, right? They're the ones with the final call. Even if they're your anchor on the 4x4 team and without them, you don't even make the state meet and even with them at 50%, you still win the state meet. You know, if they say no-go, it's a no-go. 100%. I couldn't sum it up better. So hopefully, um, hopefully you took something away from this. As we mentioned at the beginning, check out our scholar programs, scholar supreme programs. Um, check out it all beyond it's good West. it's getting it's better Steve and I are talking about we're out of the experimental mode here if you've been with us you know as we've shifted the constitution of high performance West and what it was and what's becoming you know we spent the last about year and a half in experimental mode and now we finally are like hey this is what we want to do with it and it's going to be awesome and thank you to our longtime subscribers and scholars who are killing it the ogs and yes you guys Gosh. are i love the emails comments and all that stuff uh of those who are going through the program have left yes. us and it, it's been a lot of fun and it's only getting better so hope you guys enjoyed it and are becoming better coaches and uh becoming better coaches than we are and that's what we that's what the people want and we're here to give it to you as always just Happy to give the people what they want.